This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Hammer Time. On this week's episode, the best of Hammer Time. Senator Tom Cotton, welcome to the program. Hey, Bill, it's good to be on with you. Republican Senator from Arkansas, I recall you being suspicious of this story back in January. Why then? Yeah, so, Bill, I first started following this story in earlier mid-January um, about this viral pneumonia of unknown origin. I began to read a lot of the reporting on the issue, read a lot about past pandemics and responses to them, and it became pretty clear to me from the beginning um, that this was a severe risk to our public health and our economy in the United States. And, and that's not through any special scientific knowledge. It's just through common sense of following, on the one hand, the rhetoric of the Chinese Communist Party, um, which was soothing and calming and telling everyone it was under control and that there's no human-to-human transmissibility versus Chinese actions, which were extreme and draconian. I mean, they literally welded doors shut on high-rise apartment buildings. They shut schools down, not just in Wuhan, but throughout all of China. They allowed Hong Kong to ban flights coming from mainland China. The contrast between the Chinese communist rhetoric on the one hand and actions on the other hand is what told me from the very beginning um, that this virus was a grave threat to our health and to our economy. Just be clear on that for a second. So you're saying this came from you and your observations. Someone was not telling you this? No, I had no sources or no reporting at the time. I, I can tell you, even though I'm a member of the Armed Service and the Intelligence Committee, I, I didn't learn about this through official channels. Um, I just learned about it through the news that I follow as a senator, which is different than what I did as a private citizen. You know, I, I read somewhat obscure uh, news sources, especially whenever those obscure news sources have reporting that I think is relevant to my people here in Arkansas or around the country. And the best early reporting on this virus in early and mid-January came from East Asian news sources, um, like, for instance, the Asian Nikkei Review, or from some medical and scientific journals like Stat News or The Lancet. Um, They were well ahead of the curve uh, on reporting on this virus, and, and that's where I first began to learn about it. And then I started diving deeper into more official type work, you know, doing after action reviews of the SARS outbreak in 2003 or the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Um, But to me, it it was really just the contrast between Chinese rhetoric and Chinese actions that told me all I needed to know about the gravity of the situation when most of Washington was obsessed about impeachment. Hmm. So, you know, the news that increasing confidence that this started in a Wuhan lab, not as a bioweapon, but as a mistake. You've read that report, and what do you make of it? I, I, I've seen Brett Baer's bombshell report to that effect, and I think um, that it just adds one more piece of circumstantial evidence to the case that this virus originated in one of those labs in Wuhan. Um, I was saying as early as late January um, that we needed to consider that possibility. 
Um, and as you say, there's lots of ways it can originate in the lab. Um, only one of them is the so-called bioweapon or manufactured hypothesis. The more likely hypothesis would be it, it originated in the lab um, and breached, had an accidental breach. Um, now, we, we don't have direct evidence of that. And frankly, we may never have direct evidence of it, given the Chinese communist lies about this virus. But to me, the circumstantial evidence from the very beginning with common sense and a little bit of thinking about the inherent logic of events makes a pretty compelling case. Hmm. So here's that case. Yeah, I just want to be um, clear that with a lot of intelligence, it's not definitive and we are not characterizing it as such. So where does that leave us in, yeah. try, in terms of trying to understand that? Well, yeah, so, so here's the case I, I would lay out for your listeners. Um, we know the virus did not originate in the food market. Um, as early as January, an authoritative study in The Lancet, the British science journal, uh, looked at the earliest cases of the virus in Wuhan, and more than a third of them had no contact at all with the food market. We also know from the best evidence we have available that the food market didn't even sell bats at all. The Chinese Communist Party has since acknowledged that it didn't originate in the food market. So that raises the question, where did it originate? Well, as I've said from the very beginning, it's pretty coincidental that China has these two virology labs in Wuhan. We know they research bats. We know they research coronaviruses. We know that Chinese laboratories have a history of shoddy safety practices. Now, thanks to Josh Rogan's reporting in the Washington Post, we know that our embassy in Beijing was worried about the safety practices in those laboratories going back as far as 2018. And we can also see the Chinese Communist Party's behavior about the origins of this virus going back to January. Mm. I mean, they would send the secret police in the middle of the night to doctors who were trying to blow the whistle on Chinese social media. Several scientists involved in the matter have disappeared. They have clamped down on any reporting related to the origins of the virus. They have destroyed evidence related to it. They have banned reporters from the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the Washington Post from mainstream or mainland China. They have spread disinformation about this virus resulting from American soldiers who visited China last year. None of that is direct evidence. None of it is conclusive. But it's a pretty compelling circumstantial case that this virus originated in the laboratory. And as Brett Baer's reporting suggested, someone was exposed to the virus in the lab in this uh, hypothesis, and then they became the patient zero that seeded it outside of the laboratory. We may never have direct, conclusive evidence of it, but as you say, Bill, that's not the way intelligence often works. You have to use common sense, and you have to take all the pieces of evidence, circumstantial though they may be, and try to stitch together a mosaic. And on this one, I'd say the mosaic is pretty compelling. Just a few uh, quick-fire questions here. What is their incentive by working with this in a laboratory? So this is... This is broadly, Bill, what I call the the good science, bad safety hypothesis. There are plenty of reasons to research coronaviruses, especially in that part of the world where they have originated on occasion, um, as with SARS, now with this one. So to identify diagnostic tests for coronaviruses, prophylactic drugs against them, therapeutic drugs against them, vaccines against them. Um, So there there are sound reasons to be dealing with deadly pathogens. We have military laboratories in our country that deal with some of the world's deadliest pathogens. But our laboratories, of course, have world-class safety practices to prevent against a kind of outbreak like we may have seen in Wuhan. Tim Murtaugh, welcome to the program. It's good to have you on, sir. 
Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Tim is the director of communications for Donald Trump's re-election campaign. One thing I've been trying to get my head around is what a campaign looks like. When you map this out, if this is indeed virtual, what does it look like for your campaign, for Joe Biden's campaign? Uh, Well, I mean, I can tell you what it looks like for Joe Biden's campaign right now. It looks like a bunch of frozen images on computer screens, uh, images going to black for minutes at a time garbled audio and a candidate who doesn't know when he's on camera or not. That's what it looks like for Joe Biden. Mm. Uh, But but my my point, Tim, is that the imaginations must be vivid on both sides to try and figure out how to be effective now. Well, I I think I think all the people have to look at is what the president's campaign has been doing. This is a this is a campaign that was built on data and technology, and we were able to pivot to the virtual realm in a space of about 24 hours and, and really not, I wouldn't even say hit the ground running. We were already at full speed. Uh, we have been running new programming every single night at eight o'clock Eastern across all of President Trump's social media channels. And every one of those shows at eight o'clock every night, every single show has gotten over a million unique viewers, and some of them more than two and a half million viewers. And so we're reaching we're reaching voters in ways that no campaign had ever done before. Since March 13th, which is the first day we were all working remotely on the campaign, our volunteers have made almost 25 million phone calls to voters in key states across the country. That's 25 million calls in less than in about two months. That's astounding. Those are those are levels that you wouldn't see until late October before an election. And we're doing that here in the early spring. Mm. Now, President Trump is determined uh, and very optimistic that we're going to get back on the campaign trail for real. Um, You know, you see him making official trips, White House trips to Arizona and Pennsylvania, uh, and he wants to get back out and do the rallies. But in the meantime, when we haven't been out on out on the, uh, the campaign trail doing rallies, we have been meeting and talking to voters. You can do that a lot of different ways. You don't have to knock on their doors to do it. And that, that's what we've been doing. And let me tell you, Joe Biden and the DNC, they absolutely can't match us. You know, if they were making this many voter contact calls, they'd be talking about it. And they're not. Um, do you think Charlotte happens in terms of a conventional convention? Yeah, absolutely. The, the president uh, is looking forward to that. Uh, it's an important thing. The, the, this will be the culmination of the four years. It's a chance uh, for Republicans to re-nominate him, to celebrate what happened and what he accomplished in the first four years and look forward to the next four years. Yeah, there, there, will, be, there will be a convention. So have you considered the downscaling of this convention? What's plan B? What does it look like? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know that we talk too much about a plan B. There is a convention uh, committee of people who work there in and around the Charlotte area. And I know that they're in touch with the president. There was a story that crossed on Fox News. Biden campaign reaches out to disaffected Republicans who reach right back. What or how would you react to disaffected Republicans in 2020? Um, I don't think there are too terribly many of them. As a matter of fact, I mean, this president has united the Republican Party to historic, unprecedented levels. He has uh, the approval of uh, north of 95 percent, 96 percent of Republicans in the numbers that we see and also in a lot of public polls that are out there. And so there are there are not the disaffected Republicans to even really speak of. And I think that this is something where, you know, the, the Biden campaign creates this 
you know, shell of a coalition group saying, oh, it's Republicans for Biden. And they managed to pick a couple of former Republicans off the scrap heap and hold them up and parade them in public view. And somebody in the media bites on it. But, you know, it's fiction. President Trump has the support of nearly 100 percent of the Republican Party. We saw that during the primaries where uh, he was getting record vote totals in state after state, more votes than any other president of either party running for re-election. And he was essentially unopposed and we didn't do anything in most of those states to get out the vote. And he still set vote records. Uh, look, the voter enthusiasm, it is also well known. This is this kind of flies right in the face of, of Biden's theory there about disaffected Republicans. It's also well known that there is a huge enthusiasm gap. It shows up in public polls, which we generally uh, don't have great faith in public polls. But when you're talking about something that is a 30 or 40 point gap, where people are more enthusiastic about voting for President Trump than Democrats are for Joe Biden, that there's definitely something to that. We're not concerned. Why don't we pause right there? More Hammer Time after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. My guest today, KT McFarland, former Deputy National Security Advisor for President Trump. And KT, welcome to Hammer Time. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, you've been out in the wilderness for a while, (laughs) and now you're clawing your way back. You had a front row seat to the early days of this White House. Yes. How do you look back on that period now? I look back, having taken a year and a half off to think about it and try to figure out what had happened to the country, what had happened to me, what happens next. And I came to the conclusion that what this is all about is not just the establishment versus Trump. That's part of it. Um, the establishment would love you to think that it's all about, gee, it's all Trump. And the minute Trump's gone, things will go back to normal. And frankly, Trump wants you to think it's all about him, too. But it isn't. It's bigger than Trump. I think what it is, is the establishment is stuck. They're old leaders. They're tired old leaders, tired old ideas. And for the last, say, 10 or 15 years, they've really failed the American people. They've been in two foreign wars that we couldn't win. They've expended trillions that we could have used to rebuild the country and rebuild the infrastructure and the school system. But most important, they've failed the working class Americans. I mean, I grew up in a working class family and I live the American dream. And I don't think it's there for the people who were born 10, 15 years ago and and the future for their children. So I think and I put that firmly on the foot of the establishment. So I think that's part of it. And the other part of it is, as Trump represents all those people, particularly the working class around the country, that the establishment says, we don't want anything to do with you, and because they want to cling to power. And I think that's the story of America, is that that Americans, by their very nature, are a dynamic people. We have immigration, we have geographic changes, demographic changes. You know, economic changes, industrial changes, and we keep evolving and recreating ourselves. But government, by its very nature, is stuck. It's status quo, doesn't want anything to change, and doesn't want anybody else to be in mm. charge. And so I think what we're having now is a battle between Donald Trump 
and the Washington establishment, Trump representing the majority of the American people. Well, so that's what the book is about, yeah. clearly. But it's also about my personal experiences. What what was it like during the transition? Why did I abandon the Republican establishment? And then particularly my days in the White House, the early chaotic days of the Trump administration, um, General Flynn's firing, uh, my experiences from the inside of the Mueller investigation, and then, as I said, my finally my conclusion that, in fact, this is an okay thing that America's going through. You believe some people think it's okay. I believe it's a miserable period. I think that we're going through a revolutionary well, sir, period. Why did you just end your statement? Because I actually am quite optimistic about where this all goes. I think America recreates itself when it goes through these political revolutions every generation or so. And that's what we're going through now. It's a war between a political war between the American people and the establishment, the political establishment, the Washington establishment, the ruling class. And we have these. We've had them from the very beginning. And at the end of them all, we actually come out a recreated nation. And that is what lies, I think, at the heart of American greatness and exceptionalism. Every other country in the history of the world, rise, shine, inevitably declines. America, rise, shine, we decline for a little while, and then we come back again. We recreate ourselves, not just as individuals in the sense of the American dream and the land of opportunity, but as a nation, as a society. Mm. I remember in the very early days, I was in the West Wing of this administration. I was working on some interviews and trying to attract more guests to our program. It was a new administration. I think they were still hanging pictures on the wall. <laughs> I remember it very, uh, quite clearly, sitting on the couch in Kellyanne Conway's office, waiting for her to arrive. I'm not quite sure I should have been there. Um, in that particular moment, uh, there's a waiting room outside where you can sit as well. And I remember meeting with you and General Michael Flynn. Yes. And we were talking about the hotspots around the world. And, and the two of you wanted to know, how is this administration being perceived on the outside? Mm -hmm. And I was frank with you in the yeah. following way. I, I, I viewed it as chaotic. And I think I likened it to January of 1993 when Bill Clinton was going through the beginning stages of his first term because there was a lot of chaos for Clinton when he came to the White House as well. You think about that time, KT, mm -hmm. and what comes to your mind well, and what you recall specifically? It was chaotic, and I think in and intentionally so. Trump had never been to Washington. I mean, when I sat down during my interview with President Trump, and I'm going to shamelessly plug my new book mm -hmm. because I talk about it in great detail. Uh, when I sat down in Trump Tower... Prior to my meeting with President-elect Trump, I sat down with Reince Priebus and Eric Trump, who had brought me into the campaign and to the administration. And I said, well, you know, I hear, here's the jobs you're thinking of me for and here's how it goes. And I realized none of them had been in the White House. I realized that they didn't even know the floor plan of the West Wing. And then it occurred to me that not only had had none of these people worked in, in an administration or in the White House, but half of them probably, in fact, most of them had probably never even set foot in the White House. They probably hadn't even gone on a tour of the White House. And so I sat down with Reince Priebus and his yellow legal pad, and I drew out a floor plan of the West Wing and said, okay, so these offices rarely change over time, and the functions of the people who sit in them rarely change. Here's the chief of staff. Here's what his job is. Here's the national security advisor. Here's what his job is. Before long, a few other people in Trump Tower transition, including General Flynn, came into my office, and I said something which I think they were quite shocked at. 
I said, the National Security Advisor is somebody who you think of as the aide to the president, like a staff aide, like a spin on the campaign, where the National Security Advisor helps the president write his speeches, talks to him about hot spots in the world, helps him deal with the crisis of the day. But the National Security Council has a very different and, in fact, far more important function, which is it brings together all of the agencies of government, State Department, Defense Department, Treasury, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Intelligence Community, and it brings them together in the Situation Room once or twice a week, and they thrash out policies. And that's how policies get reviewed, assessed, and recommendations go to the president. They were shocked. And so I realized that for me, the most important thing I could do as the one person who had worked in the White House, who had spent seven years in the West Wing working for Dr. Henry Kissinger in the Nixon and Ford administrations and then again in the Reagan administration, was to help them through those first couple of weeks because what happens to America is every country in the world knows we're most vulnerable as we change administrations. Nobody else does it like we do where you have a president and all of his top advisors and cabinet officers are new. And every country knows that's the moment we're going to test America. That's the moment we're going to take advantage of them before they even know, you know where the Xerox machine is. And that's what my fear was at the beginning, that we would have a crisis, say, with North Korea mm-hmm. on day one. And the problem is that at 12.01 on Inauguration Day, the new president is responsible for the defense and security of the American people before anybody's figured out what's going on. For more episodes of Hammer Time and other podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.